If you have your copy of God's Word, you can open up with me to John chapter 15. Uh, we're returning to our study in, in that gospel after taking the, the summer off. and I'm excited to be back. Uh, in, uh, in 2010, there was a, a British online retailer called GameStation that updated their terms of service as an April Fool's prank. They, they added a, a clause uh, into their, their terms of service that would say if somebody made a, a purchase on their, their website uh, and had agreed to those new terms, uh, they, they completed a sale, and in doing so, the buyer was also agreeing to give their eternal soul to the company. And uh, only 12% of online customers bothered to read through the new terms of service uh, and then to decline them. So there were about 7,500 customers uh, who, uh, back in 2010, without even maybe even realizing it, uh, agreed to, to give their souls to this game uh, company. Uh, and uh, we may laugh at such uh, pranks, but then you're also probably starting to wonder, what have I agreed to? Because we, we all read every, every word in those terms of service, right? Usually we, we, we browse the first little bit and then we click yes. Uh, but we don't really know what all is, is in those uh, agreements. Uh, and uh, we, we, can, we can laugh this off, but we have to begin to, to wonder. And we have to realize that the fine print is where the most important details are found. And it would be really nice if uh, among the fine print there were like larger sections that were the most important and that they were really bold, that we could kind of be able to, to skim through and say, oh, this is what really matters right here. And what is it I'm signing up for? And uh, we might, uh, in, in realizing that the fine print is where the most important details are found, we might ask, what are, what are the fine print details of following after Jesus? Uh, the, the offer of the gospel uh, is made uh, and proclaimed, and it's free to everyone. As we studied in the, our equipping hour this morning, working through our Bible survey, we, we looked at the, the book of Acts, uh, and we saw that the, the proclamation of the gospel is just proclaiming who Jesus is and what he has done. And uh, the, the beginning point of that is also understanding who we are, uh, and that all humanity, all people everywhere, uh, have sinned and rebelled against uh, the holy God who's created us, who's given us life and breath and everything else. Uh, and we, we need to, to know who we are, who God is, and then we understand also what God has done uh, to reconcile us uh, with himself. He sent his son in love to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, and then to die on the cross. That, that's the, the proclamation of uh, the good news and, and the gospel. And all who look to Jesus in faith and who respond to that uh, news of what Jesus has already done, uh, everyone who looks to him in faith and trusts in him alone for forgiveness and reconciliation is uh, brought into relationship with God the Father. That, that's the good news of the gospel, and looking to Christ is, is free. Now that that's the message but but the fine print of that that salvation is free but then following after Jesus which he calls you to do following after him will cost you everything that that that's the fine print of the gospel that Jesus says if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me now, and where do where do the footsteps of Christ lead on this earth they lead to the cross an instrument of death 
And that's what he calls all who believe in him to do. And as we, we jump back into John's gospel this morning, the, the passage that we're going to be studying in John 15 uh, is Jesus preparing his disciples, the, the 11 disciples. Uh, Judas Iscariot has gone out and, and left them. Uh, and he's right now, as we're studying these words of Jesus, as he's speaking to the disciples, Judas Iscariot is, is working to betray Jesus. Uh, that he's there with the temple guard and with the Roman soldiers, and he's going to, to meet, uh, and, and, or he's been probably searching for Jesus, uh, and they're going to find Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. And right now in John 15, Jesus is walking with the 11 disciples. They left the upper room, which, where they were in chapters 13 and 14, after Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, and he told them, he announced to them, that there was going to be one among them who was going to betray him. Uh, and then Judas departs, uh, and then speaking to the eleven who are going to remain faithful, Jesus says, I'm going to depart from you, and you can't follow. Uh, that was earth-shattering to them, uh, and he gives them a, a new commandment in chapter 13. If you turn back there, verses 34 and 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then immediately after that, building not off of what was just said right there, love one another, Peter goes back to what was previously said. Hey, Jesus, you said you were, you were leaving and we couldn't follow. I'm, I'm ready to follow you. And Jesus says, no, no, You'll, you will deny me before the sun rises. So there's a big earth-shattering announcement after earth-shattering announcement this, and during this last supper with the disciples, one of them is going to betray him. Peter, the leader of them, is going to deny him. Uh, he's going to be departing and they can't follow. All of these things in chapter 14 encompasses uh, where Jesus is going to go, namely to the Father, and then what he is going to do. That he's going to send the, the Spirit, he's going to send the, the helper to the disciples to empower them, to lead them, to guide them. And he begins chapter 14 with these words, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He's going to say much the same thing in, uh, towards the end of chapter 27, or chapter uh, 14, verse 27. He, says, he closes that verse with saying, Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That they're, they, these men are having their world rocked to its core because their leader, their Lord, is saying that he's going to leave them. And then what are they to do? Chapter 15 is then Jesus preparing his disciples for what they are to do and to be after he departs. Uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, are going to explain how the disciples are to continue to relate to Jesus even after he has departed and gone from them. Verses 1 through 8, that the overall summary was that the disciples are to abide in Christ. They are to remain in him, to trust in him, to not waver or depart from anything that he has taught or done. Verses 9 to 16, he instructed them concerning how they are to relate to one another. And really, uh, in that uh, section, he's just going to echo what he commanded them in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He, he commands that they are to relate to one another in love. Uh, you are to love one another. Now we, we come to, to verse 17, and uh, through the end of this chapter, there's going to be a new section. And Jesus is going to be instructing and preparing his disciples about how they are to relate to the world around them. So they've already heard how they relate to Jesus himself, how they relate to one another. Now, how do they relate to those who are not looking to Jesus in faith? 
beginning in verse 17. Let's read through the end of the the chapter. We're just going to look at verses 17 to 21 this morning and study that in depth. But I want to read through the rest of the, the chapter here. Verse 17, Jesus says, This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But this happened to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. As we study verses 17 to 21 this morning, we're going to see Jesus pull back the the theological curtain. He's going to be informing and and teaching the disciples about uh, what they should expect in the future as they interact with the world. And as we study this passage, we're going to see Jesus explaining the fine print of following him. What can we expect? If If you sign up to follow after Jesus, what are the results going to be in your own life? How is this going to impact your relationship? How is this going to impact uh, what you live for, what you do? This fine print is going to be uh, experienced to one degree or another by every person who ever trusts in Jesus and seeks to live a godly life prior to the Lord's return to this earth. So what can we expect as, as we interact with the world? If we, as we have our cross on our shoulder and we've taken it up and we're following Jesus Christ daily, what can we expect? We see here in this passage, Jesus is going to explain first the reality of the world's hatred. Then he's going to explain the reasons for the world's hatred. Now, that's what we need to, to come to expect, that we are not shocked by that. Before we dive into this passage and look at those uh, two portions, I want to pause and pray and ask for the Lord to guide and to bless uh, our study of his word this morning. Almighty Father. You are perfect, holy, righteous. You know all things. You have known the end from the beginning, and you have written down all that we need to know for life and godliness in your word. It is your word by the power of your spirit that instructs our hearts and our minds and helps us to know how we ought to live a life pleasing to you in this world. We pray that you would use this passage in our lives, in our uh, hearts today and every day to follow, to give us hope, comfort, 
and courage uh, to, to weary and discouraged hearts. It is easy to see the world around us, to, to see and to feel the, the, its pressures. Lord, may you use this time in your word to give glory to your name and to strengthen our hearts for your glory. In the matchless name of your son, we pray. Well, I mentioned first that we, what we see in verses 17 and 18 is the reality of the world's hatred. And Jesus begins verse 18 uh, with a, a conditional statement. He says, if, if the world hates you, and the way that's worded in the Greek is, is it is not in doubt. And there's different ways of explaining hypotheticals in the, the Greek language and the way that this is put together. Uh, it is assuming that this is true. This is going to happen. It says, if the world hates you is really when the world hates you, when this takes place, you need to understand why and what is going to what it's going to, to look like. And Jesus is is going to use these types of uh, conditional statements throughout this this passage. He's going to say, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, what does Jesus mean by the world? Is he speaking about the the literal earth? Well, what is he talking about here? And over and over again in, in John's gospel, as, the, uh, as Jesus and the, uh, the apostle John speak, that, that when they use this term, the world, what they're referring to uh, is sinful humanity in rebellion against God and against his son. Uh, that, that's what is encompassed by the world. All those who refuse to look to Christ in faith uh, but are living in rebellion against God. Uh, this is uh, what he means by the world, which also adds uh, new depth to the most famous verse in the Bible, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. God so loved the world in rebellion against him that he gave his only son, that whoever looks uh, to him in faith would have everlasting life. Thinking through this is very, very profound. And that God is at work to save people out of the world and, and to bring, him in, bring them into relationship with himself through his son. Uh, but all those who do not look to Jesus in faith are a part of what is uh, known as the world here in John's gospel. Uh, and so here in uh, over and over again in John's gospel, Jesus is seen as a dividing line uh, that, that he will uh, create division among people. You're either a, a part of his disciples and you're following after him or you're part of the world and its system. And you're you're working against uh, God and his son, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus wants his disciples to know he's yeah, remember he's he's getting ready to to depart from them and they need to be ready and equipped these 11 men that he's talking to as they walk along these are going to be the leaders of the future church these are going to be the men that need to set the tone for all of the other churches that are going to be established and planted uh, in the new testament the apostle paul is going to be grafted in among them but but these are the men that he's preparing to do that work and he's trying to, to get them to to know what are the details that are that are awaiting them they have to be prepared to stand firm against the world and against the hatred of the world. 
He's seeking to prepare them. And throughout, throughout church history, this has pretty much been the, the common experience of hatred from the world. Uh, there's uh, been many different seasons of persecution uh, experienced throughout church history and around uh, the globe. Now, during the, the, the Roman Empire, uh, Christians experienced lots of localized persecution. Usually if the governor within that province didn't like you, the, the Christians would be persecuted. Uh, sometimes there was also empire-wide persecution, uh, but very uh, rarely within that. And that took, a, took place uh, often in terms of those persecutions during the times of the Roman Empire. And then beyond that throughout church history, even into modern-day times. Right? The churches in China or in the Muslim world in modern days, they, they understand that there is always a reality, always a possibility of persecution. And sometimes that persecution comes directly from the government itself, and sometimes that persecution just comes from their neighbor. Now, you may have heard in the news right now that what's going on in, in Pakistan, that there was a Quran that was burned in Pakistan, supposedly by a Christian. I personally may, may doubt that because that's a really easy way to incite violence against Christians. You, you, if you're a Muslim, you just burn a Quran, and then everybody is attacking the Christians. And right now there have been churches, many, many churches throughout the entire nation of Pakistan that have been burned to the ground. Many Christian families that have had their personal homes burnt to the ground and who have lost everything. And so the reality of persecution, we live in a bubble within church history right here and right now. But even that, I think, is beginning to change. In our own nation, we're experiencing a rapid secularization or a rapid shift conversion into kind of an atheistic worldview. There was a really interesting article in the journal First Things by an author named Aaron M. Wren, and it came out in, in February of 2022. And in that article, he described three distinct stages of the, the transformation that we've kind of experienced in the last 30 years within America. And he says, uh, he, he looks at these three different phases, and he says, he calls the first phase from uh, pre-1994 all the way up to 1994, he calls that the, the positive world. He says that uh, up and during that time period, that society at large retained a mostly positive view of Christianity. And to be known as a good church-going man uh, remained part of being an upstanding citizen. And publicly being a Christian uh, in, during that time was a status enhancer. That Christian moral norms were the basic moral norms of society and violating them uh, brought negative consequences. But then from, from 1994 to 2014, there was a little bit of a, a shift in what he calls neutral world. As society began to take a neutral stance toward Christianity, Christianity was no longer a, a privileged status, but uh, it wasn't exactly disfavored either. Being publicly known as a Christian had neither positive nor negative uh, impact on your social status. Uh, Christianity w was one valid option among many from 1994 to 2014. And then he says from 2014 to the present, he says we now live in what he calls negative world. Where society has become uh, or put on a negative view of Christianity. And being known as a Christian uh, is a social negative, and particularly among the, the elites in our society, in, in academia, in Hollywood, uh, in, in politics. If you are identified as a Christian, that is a mark against you. It's no longer neutral or a, a positive uh, thing. Uh, and uh, really all of that began, and what, he, and his, uh, what he outlines in the article, what changed in 2014 is that was when, just before the uh, decision regarding Obergefell versus uh, Hodges and, and the, the statement on marriage from the Supreme Court. 
And so well, we now live in this world, and, and I know you feel it. Uh, you college students who are in on campuses, you guys who are in, in the workplace, you begin to, to feel the pressure upon you. Uh, and there's a, suddenly a little bit of a, a hesitancy uh, as you're talking with those around you that maybe I, if I say that I'm a Christian, what are they going to think? What are they going to say if I'm talking with my neighbor and I, I mention this? Right? And it goes through your mind. doesn't mean that you shouldn't follow Christ and announce that to others. On the contrary, we still must do that. We still must bear witness. We don't shrink back, but this is the world that we're, this is the water that we're now swimming in. And this is just the reality. You might, you might say, well, why does the world hate Jesus? You keep your, your finger here and go back in John's gospel to John chapter 3. A little bit further down, we, we talked about John 3.16 that you are familiar with. For God so loved the world. But look in verse 19, look at what. The world loves because they love what because of what they love that also determines what they hate john three nineteen and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. John says that the world hates the light, speaking of Christ, because they love darkness. They love sin. They love going their own way, doing their own thing. They don't want to turn and look to the God who has created him. The God that we all have to give an account to one day. They don't like that. And so that the world hated the ministry of Jesus, and they will also hate the mission of his church. And I would say that the, the, the more uh, a church uh, animates and imitates the ministry of Christ in its ministry, the more the world is going to, to hate that church and to be hostile to it. Jesus seeks to prepare his disciples to face the hatred of the world. And they will, it's, it's, you don't have to read very far into the book of Acts to see the, the hatred. You don't have to look very far to see uh, the, the Sanhedrin, the same body of men that crucified Christ, pulling the, the, these apostles in and saying, stop talking about him. Stop talking about him or we're going to kill you. Then they beat them with rods and the, the apostles go out rejoicing that they were able to suffer for his name. That's the, the mindset of the apostles. Christ prepared them well. But, but I want to bring us back. I, I said that this point was verses 17 and 18, but I jumped immediately to verse 18. Look back at verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. Now, he said the exact same thing in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Nearly identical. I think verse 17 is kicking off a, a new section. You can debate me on that and we can disagree. That's fine. But I think verse 17 needs to be held in tandem with verse 18. Right? In, in the middle of a world filled with hate, the church is to be a community of people who are marked by their testimony about who Jesus is and what he's done and who are marked by love for one another. Uh, that's what the, the church is to be in the midst of a world filled with hate. 
And because of uh, our love for Christ and our love for one another, we go and proclaim. We don't shrink back from proclaiming the full counsel of God. We want to be ambassadors for Christ. Amen? And we do that out of love. We beg people to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we go and announce and proclaim who he is and what he's done. We got, they got to go uh, on uh, Friday night to the Spirit of Boise. Uh, Bruce was there with a the team. I, I guess there were close to 32,000 people there. And we got to hand out hundreds, hundreds of gospel tracts. Uh, going out into our communities, what we need to be doing uh, as a church, as individuals, as, as families, going and meeting our neighbors, proclaiming the gospel, having conversations with coworkers and friends. We need to be going out because we love, because we care. And this is really, really important that we don't leave out the fine print as we go and proclaim, as, as you're witnessing. We're, we're going to tell people about who Jesus is and what he's done, but also make it clear that following Jesus is hard. It's easier than life out in the world where we're dealing with everything else, all of our sin, all of its consequences. Following after Jesus is the best thing that anybody could ever do, but it's a hard path to follow. We want to give people the fine print. If you follow Jesus, here's what this means. And what Jesus is giving to his disciples right here and right now, as he himself is walking towards being arrested, is if you, if you do this, if you stand with me, the world is going to hate you. You're going to lose friends. You may lose family members. Your relationships with your parents or your children may become strained. You might lose your job. You might lose your home. Who who knows? There's so many things that that can follow after that. Are you ready to lose everything in in following after Christ? That's what he's seeking to prepare, not only the 11 for, but also you and I. Are we ready to follow after Jesus no matter what the consequences? No matter what the world says, no matter what the world does. I love what D.A. Carson says about this passage. He says, from an evangelistic perspective... These verses demand decision because the issues are of ultimate importance. Following Jesus costs something and may cost life itself. Yet not following Jesus means that one is siding with a lost and hateful world. To warn prospective disciples of these unyielding realities serves to discourage spurious conversions and to foster true ones. And just as Jesus told these things to the first disciples in order to ensure stability until the time that faith truly dawned. Jesus couldn't shrink back from telling them all of the the details of what was to come. Jesus informed the disciples of the hardships that they were going to face. And we must do the same as we proclaim who Jesus is and what he has done. We can't shrink back from the fine print of the gospel. The reality is that the unbelieving world around us is not neutral. It is very much against us. It hates our Lord and it hates us. But we might ask, why? What did I ever do to the world? Right? Why do they hate me? Well, Jesus is going to explain that in verses 19 to 21. Where we see that the reasons for the world's hatred. I want to read those verses again. Because if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So as Jesus begins to explain the hatred of the world, he's going to give his disciples three reasons for this hatred. Number one is found in verse 19. I would put it this way, that Christians are chosen by Christ. It's the first reason that Jesus gives. And in verse 19, he uses the, the, the term the world five times. He's going he's to make this contrast, this comparison. He's emphasizing uh, the world in this verse. And he's again, he's going to use a, a, a conditional statement, if you were of the world. But this one is put together differently in the Greek. This one, the way that it's put together in the Greek communicates that he's assuming something that isn't true. Right, this is just a hypothetical. If you were of the world, and you're not, is the implication. If you were of the world, hypothetically speaking, the world would love you because you would be of one of their own. And the world loves its own. But he says, but you are not. But because you are not of the world, but, there's a contrast here, you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. And because of this, the world hates you. So Jesus is emphasizing his selection, his choice of his disciples. He says, I chose you out of the world. And there's two significant implications. Number one is selection, that Jesus is the one doing the the choosing and the calling. And this goes back to chapter 15, verse 16. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Jesus is emphasizing his selection, that he's calling uh, his disciples out of the world. So the emphasis and the impact is uh, selection, but also separation, because he's not selecting them uh, from the world and then saying, just stay in the world. He's saying, I'm selecting you out of the world. I'm going to select you and then I'm going to pull you out and separate you. I'm going to make you uh, distinct and call you apart. Uh, And uh, this is is a deeper explanation here. Why does the world hate Christians? Because we are no longer from among them and we've been connected to Christ. Christ has called us out. Again, to to quote D.A. Carson, I love what he says here. He says, the world is a society of rebels. And therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king to whom all loyalty is due. Former rebels who have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. Right? If we were all moving in rebellion, and we all were, if we were in league with the world around us, going wholeheartedly away from God and Christ... And then we turn back, everybody else is going to notice that, right? And, and when you're moving in a, in a crowd, is it fun to have other people moving against the, the crowd or the movement? No, you bump shoulders, you bump heads, you, you, all of these things, and you begin to notice. And that's what we begin to feel, and, the, and the, the world notices that too, and they don't like that. Because the fact that you're going in the other direction says something about the direction that they're going in. That's what Jesus is saying here. That the world is going to hate you because I've called you out of the world, not to be among the world and to be characterized by the world anymore. The first reason that he gives. The second reason is found in verse 20. I put it this way, that Christians belong to Christ. 
Verse 20 begins, remember the word that I said to you. Referring back to chapter 13, verse 16, when he's there washing the, the feet of the disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus is, is bringing to remembrance what he already said, shows that it's important. He says, a slave is not greater than his master. And, and when he says that, what's the implication? That in his relationship with his people, Jesus is Lord and master and his people are slave servants. We are connected to Christ in a subservient relationship. And slaves don't get treated better than their masters. Right? That just doesn't happen. He says if, if they are willing to do this to the, the master, they're willing to, to persecute and ultimately they're about to, to murder the master and the Lord, what, what can we expect? If we're following after him, we should not expect better treatment. And then the, the last couple of statements in verse 20 are going to be more conditional statements. He's going to uh, explain things since the, the world has hated Christ. He's going to build upon these things. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. He makes these two statements, and the first one is really going to be predicting persecution and hatred and animosity, but the second, I think there's a little bit more to it. Because if they, they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And, they, uh, and you could kind of, pulling all of this together, most of the, the world completely rejected what Jesus said and what he did. But there were a few who didn't reject. There were a few like the 11 that he's talking to right now, who heard everything that Jesus said, and they believed. And, and they trusted in him, and they were willing to die to, in following after him. They were willing to, to do that. And so I think what, what is, is being stated here should also give us hope, because he says if they believed and kept, observed what Jesus said, then they will also keep and observe what uh, the disciples are saying. And most are going to reject, but there's going to be a few. There's going to be some who respond and to the gospel. They respond to the good news by looking to Christ in faith. And again, as we're look, studying through the, the book of Acts in equipping hour today, who's the, the most well-known example of somebody who went from completely hating Christians to being one? The, the apostle Paul, yeah, a.k.a. Saul, right? Think about that. God is able to transform hearts. That's what he does in the world. He takes rebels and those who hate him and he transforms them and then he uses them for his glory. That's what God is able to do with the power of the gospel. That's why we don't shrink back and we continue to proclaim it. And that's what is being promised here in a, in a subtle way. But then look at reason number three in verse 21. First two reasons of uh, that Jesus has called us out of the world. Second, that we belong to Jesus. Third, the world does not know God. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Now that's, that's a profound statement. That's one that really only Jesus can speak with perfect knowledge and understanding. But this, the fact that he says the world does not know the Father, that includes Israel and all of its leaders. They're the ones who are leading Christ uh, to, to crucifixion. The world does not know the Father. 
And so they hate the Son, and they hate all those who are connected to the Son and following after the Son. This is a profound statement. It's going to be expanded upon in the verses to follow, and we're going to look at those next week. But, but this statement that they don't know God, very, very profound. You might be familiar with a, with a well-known joke. Why did the chicken cross the road? Right? Dads have been building bad jokes on this for a very long time now. But the joke dates back to the, the 1840s. So your dad didn't invent it or your grandpa. It's been around for a while. And the question sets up any number of terrible, terrible punchlines. Uh, but really the, the answer to the question could always be what? To get to the other side, right? It's always that. And over the years there have been countless variations to the joke. Why did the chicken cross the playground to get to the other slide? Uh, why, why, did, why did the whale cross the ocean to get to the other tide? Uh, why did the chewing gum cross the road and it was stuck to the chicken's foot? So, so that joke always returns to that reality of the chicken wanting to get from one side of the road to the other. And the question, why does the world hate Christ And all who follow him always goes back to one big thing, and that's theology. If you look at the the reasons that Jesus gave here, they're not political, they're not demographic, they're not sociological. All three of the reasons that he gives here are theological. And that's one step above everything else. Cultural flows out of our theology. Sociological flows out of our theology. Jesus gets back to the root of it. He goes directly to the theological truths behind everything else. He doesn't say persecution comes because you have a different view of marriage and abortion, of of gender and sexuality. He He doesn't say that. He says, no, they hate Christ and they hate all who follow him because... We have been called by Christ, we belong to Christ, and they don't know God the Father. That's my summary of Jesus' explanation here. And we need to know and to to comprehend these things. We need to to set our expectations according to, to this passage right here. What can we expect? As you go and and you are faithful in proclaiming the gospel to others, what should you expect? Expect pushback. Uh, expect that and then be shocked when you don't find it and be encouraged when you don't find it because suddenly it's like okay here's an open door for the gospel to be able to go forth jc ryle says this to know and understand these things is of the utmost importance to our comfort nothing is so mischievous as the habit of indulging false expectations Let us realize that human nature never changes, that the carnal mind is enmity against God and against God's image in his people. And let us settle it in our minds that no holiness of life or consistency of conduct will ever prevent wicked people hating the servants of Christ, just as they hated their blameless master. Let us remember these things, and then we shall not be disappointed. I love that that point, right? Christ was sinless perfection. So so living a holy life is good and wonderful, and we should strive for that. But that is not going to protect us and guard us from persecution. 
Christ was perfect. I hate to break it to you. You are not. Right? Uh, and we should expect persecution. Second Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is not a Hobby Lobby verse. Right? You, when you go into Hobby Lobby, you're not going to find that uh, in, in their, their decor. But, but that verse and that truth, that, because it is true, that would bring comfort. Talk to those Christians in Pakistan. What, what verse would give them the most comfort? You're seeking to live a godly life. Here's what you need to expect. That you're going to face persecution in this world. God knows it. Christ knows it. He, he's here in this passage informing his disciples so that they're prepared. What he wants them to know. The reality of the world's hatred and the theological reasons behind the world's hatred. What happens if we don't come to grips with this spiritual reality and, and the reasons behind this reality? I would say this, if we don't grasp and comprehend this, we will end up trying to, trying to please the world, right? We, we end up trying to, to be friends with the world. We end up fearing people rather than fearing our Lord. We end up trying to please the world rather than pleasing our Lord. And we can end up compromising with the world over and over and over again until we are just like the world. I love this story from, from Charles Spurgeon. He, he read it in another text, and I'll just give it to you as what he repeated. So. But he, he gave this illustration that an old man and his young son were, were driving a donkey before them uh, to, to go to the market to sell it. And one person who comes up to the man, he says, Why, why you have no wit that you're there uh, walking along with the donkey and you and your son are trudging on foot. And, and so, you know, trying to take in this person's perspective he, to please this man, he says, so the old man puts his son on the, on the donkey uh, and he continues to walk. And then they, as they walk, they run into somebody else. Somebody else comes and says, look at this lazy son that you have. Uh, that, why, why is it that he gets to ride and you as an old man have to walk? So the old man, you know, takes his son down, and he gets on himself. And then another person comes up. And he says, well, look at this lazy old man who, who rides himself and this poor young son who has to, to walk along behind him. And the father says, okay. So he takes his son up behind him on the donkey. So they continue on. And then the next day, the old man and the son are riding together, and they encounter somebody else. And he says, well, is this your donkey? He says, yeah, well, the way that you're loading him down with you and your son, you act like you, it's not your donkey. Do you love your donkey? Uh, this is what, uh, basically the, the gist of what this next guy says to him. And so suddenly the, 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 the old man says to himself, well, what am I to do now? So if I, I'm laughed at either if the donkey is empty or if one of us rides or both. And so he comes to the conclusion that to, to take the donkey's legs together uh, with a cord and to, to tie the, the donkey's legs uh, upright over a pole, and he and his son will carry the donkey into town. And everybody who sees them doing this uh, immediately laughs. And so the old man throws the donkey down and 
into a river and, in essence, loses his donkey and just walks home, extremely discouraged. This is this man trying to, to please everybody, had the ill fortune of, of pleasing nobody and losing his donkey in, in the process. I love, uh, Spurgeon has these you know, one-liners that are just so good. He basically says, if we dance to every fiddle, we shall soon be lame in both legs. If we, if we try to make everybody happy, then the net result is that nobody is going to be happy with us. And there are many, many decisions that we make each and every day where it's either I'm going to be pleasing to my Lord or I'm going to be pleasing to the world. And in that choice, our own desires usually fit in more with the world. What decision am I, am I going to make? All too often we're willing to, to in order to be... Ex- palatable and accepted by men we disregard what the lord has called and commanded us to do i think the apostle john was was deeply impacted by this passage of the lord's instruction to him and the other 10 or disciples listen to first john 2 beginning in verse 15 the apostle john says do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. The world is not for us world is very much against us and we are called to be salt and light in the midst of a world that hates us and our lord we have to set our hearts to this reality our calling is to love the lord our god with all our heart soul mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves we're called to to go out and to proclaim who jesus is and what he has done and then we, we leave the results to god If we do that, it's not going to make us popular. On the contrary, it will make you very, very unpopular wherever you go and do that. And you know that. You feel that. Doing that faithfully will put a target on your back. Christ wants us to know that, but we still need to be willing to go and do it. Knowing that pleasing Christ, we do. if we please Jesus, it doesn't matter who else is not pleased with us. And if we please people... But disobey Jesus. It doesn't matter how many people are happy with us. And you know that in your conscience. How does that feel when you, hey, someone's happy, but I know I've disobeyed the Lord. How does that weigh upon your conscience? You know that it's not worth it. Don't forget, in, in, in the midst of these trials, in the midst of this reality, that we have to stand firm in love, proclaiming the, the gospel of reconciliation. In love, not in, not in hatred. Just because the world hates us, that doesn't make, say that we go and hate the world. We have a message of reconciliation, and to, to proclaim that message in anger kind of defeats the purpose, right? Message of reconciliation, communicated in love, being salt, being light, and knowing this, so to quote from the next chapter, spoiler alert, if you turn over to the end of the chapter 16, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, in verse 33, so that in me you may have peace. Peace isn't in the world. Peace is in Christ. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Amen?
Let's pray and then we'll, we'll sing one last song to close.